1: That's eight hundred seven six oh, eighteen forty five.
2: You guys, it's Rick Tittle.
3: Welcome in another episode of Titillating Sports on the Sports Byline USA Broadcasting Network heard across the United States and all around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. Oh, what a day and it's still morning and I've gone through the highs and the lows from an emotional standpoint. We're going to have a bunch of guests including some bowlers. My pal EJ Tackett returns. Emotional high. That's great. Awesome. I'm excited for that. Emotional low. The San Diego Padres are on the brink of acquiring Juan Soto. As a Giants fan, that stinks. It's disappointing to say the least. But one man holds the fate of Mackenzie Gore, CJ Abrams, Robert Hassel, James Wood, and Juan Soto himself. And that man is... Not AJ Prowler, no. Not Rizzo from the Nationals, no. It's Eric Hosmer. He's part of the trade, but he has a no-trade clause to the Nationals. So we'll see how much he gets paid to uh, change that. Like I said, we've got EJ Tackett coming up after the break. Uh, In the following segment, David Waskavage. I'm pretty sure that's not right, but we're going to find out if that's right. His cult classic film from 2004, Suburban Sasquatch. Out on Blu-ray now. Okay. Uh, 40 after, Felipe Esparza, comedian's going to be at Helium Philly. You've seen him in uh, the Eric Andre show and Superstore. Uh, 10 after, the next hour, Noah Parker. We're going to talk some NBA. And then 40 after, in the next hour, Deandra Beatty. That's EJ Tackett calling right now. Uh, in about an hour and a half, Deandra Esbeti, uh, Hall of Fame bowler, will be joining us because she won with EJ This past weekend in Texas, they won the PBA-PWBA striking against breast cancer mixed doubles tournament. So EJ Tackett on the other side. I'm Dominic Jimenez, Sports Byline. You may meet in an office or
4: on a video chat. Your commute might now be measured in feet, not miles. How you do business may have changed, but Staples will always have everything you need to get it done, like ink and toner, webcams, and networking accessories. This week, Apple AirPods Pro are just $199, a $50 savings and our lowest price of the season. Shop in-store or pick up curbside and save big. This week at Staples. Ends $9.19, limit two while supplies last. Curbside available in most stores.
5: If you're taking a calcium supplement, it's probably not doing what you think it is. USA. Your calcium doesn't increase bone
6: density. Algae Cal Plus does. Talk to one of our bone health consultants today and see how Algae Cal Plus can start increasing your bone density. Call now.
1: 800-437-8217. 800-437-8217. 800-437-8217. That's 800-437-8217. Are you having a difficult time getting in and out of your old bathtub? They can help you convert any old bathtub into a walk-in shower, in some cases under $2,000, in about a week. It's simple, beautiful, and priced just right. Call Steve right now for your free consultation. 855-326-7440. 855-326-7440. 326 That's 855-326-7440.
7: You're listening to Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back into the show as I continue to try to calm myself down about Juan Soto going to a division rival. I can think of no better way to distract myself than to announce the return of one of my favorite uh, interviews and bowlers. That's EJ Tackett, 14 PBA titles, couple majors, and along with Deandra Esbaty won the 2022 PBA-PWBA Storm Striking Against Breast Cancer Mixed Doubles Tournament this past weekend. It was EJ's second consecutive win in this event, third overall win, and with three different partners. And EJ also won the Roth Holman Doubles Championship with Marshall Kent earlier this year. EJ, I think we need to start there. What is it with you and doubles bowling that seems to be such a perfect fit?
8: That's uh, funny, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, bowling's pretty much uh, mostly an individual sport, but I've had a lot of success with uh, with doubles events, and actually a uh, few years ago uh, the PBA had a team event that counted for a title, and my team won that as well. So apparently I'm a better team player than I thought I was.
3: <laughs> which is, which is, has to be a little weird, because like you said, it's such an individual sport, you know, Bowling, you're 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 working against the field. You just got to show up and, and do your best and, and get a high score for seeding. And then it's one-on-one with with doubles, especially this event. It was so close down to the wire where it was just a team total. So 50 pins separated first and fifth. Literally one missed spare or, or a bad break on what should have been a strike could have changed the entire outcome, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, you look back and to the things that did happen
8: and the things that didn't happen and how it really changed. Uh, DeAndra and I won by 15 pins and there was two times in uh, the last eight games where DeAndre threw a shot that kind of went high and pins kind of just fell over and they were kind of in key moments. So, you know, if either one of those don't fall, we don't win. Um, So it's crazy to to look back and, and, and think about stuff like that and talk about that with anybody that was in the top five that if they had a break like that go their way they probably win so um you know it was just our time and uh, we took advantage of the break that we got
3: now is that difficult for you knowing it's not just uh i don't want to use the sports cliche but kind of scoreboard watching where obviously you and deandra know what you need to do you need to just keep throwing strikes keep scoring um, but at the same time, it's not just you and the opponent right next to you, where you're matching one person. You got to keep an eye out on on that team, and and that team, and that team. Like I said, there were five of you within fifty pins. So it, it was. Does that make it a unique challenge in terms of trying not to scoreboard watch and see how the other teams are doing to stay focused uh, on just what you guys are doing?
8: Yeah, I mean, you have to. I, when it comes down to it, I kind of like to know what I need to do. Um, DeAndre was opposite of that. She she never really watched the scores at all. Um, so when we when we actually did win, she was like, "Did we win?" She had no idea. <laughs> um, she knows that we were we were in second place going into the final game, but that was about it. But uh, it's really not that much different. We you know we still do a lot of the scoreboard watching um, in a similar situations when we're trying to make a TV show. So um, as far as that particular situation. Um, it's not that much different than what we do week-to-week. Week. Um and the difference is um, if you win, you win, uh, and not have that, that final step ladder.
3: And, you know, it's pretty cool over the last few weeks uh, in terms of the events that uh, I've seen, uh, bowling the bowling events and, and other stuff like that, that a lot of fanfare has been going on lately. Uh, I've seen a lot of bowlers signing autographs, taking pictures, uh, chatting with fans. What is it like... A having fans being back at uh, events again on a consistent basis, and B being able to give back to fans and potentially making a kid's day just by saying hi.
8: Yeah, I mean that's that's uh, it, it's part of what we do, and and it's amazing to to have fans uh, all over the world and uh, being able to connect with them, especially at the events. And like you said, having them there again is absolutely fantastic. I love having the fans there when, when we didn't have them, it wasn't the same. Uh, bowling on TV just it wasn't as fun. So uh, having having the fans back and, and around and, and just that energy uh, when, when they are there is, is nothing like you've ever felt before. And uh, I'm so thankful that, that we do have such great fans.
3: We're speaking with EJ Tackett, who along with his partner, DeAndrez Beatty, won the 2022 PBA PWBA Storm Striking Against Cancer Mixed Doubles Tournament this past weekend. And I mentioned that this is the third time you've won, but you've won it with three different partners. Now, obviously, personalities are going to not always be the same, but in something where it's a two-person team, how difficult is it having different partners, uh, depending on travel schedules and availability and all that kind of stuff?
8: Um, You know, I've been lucky that the last three partners that I've had uh, have all been Great bowlers. Obviously, Liz Johnson, probably the greatest female bowler that's uh, ever played the game. Uh, Danielle is well on her way to be in that same category, um, and Deandra has been a, a staple in, in the bowling community for over 20 years, and was very competitive when she was bowling on tour. I'm not sure how many titles she actually has, but I know she won several plus a major. Um, it's just been a, it's been a great experience. Um, and it's just weird how the, the partnerships have, have come about and, and why I've ended up bowling with the people that I'm bowling with and uh, to be able to win with all three different partners and uh, in the situations that we've been in, it's just been, it's been weird, but it's also been a lot of fun.
3: Now, you have a, a very unique style of bowling. Not that it's super unique, but you, you're very powerful, a lot of revs, something that we only really see with two-handed uh, bowlers at this point, really, the amount of power you're able to generate. How long and, and how much time, really, did it take for you to kind of, obviously, as a professional athlete, your form is and your technique is never... Perfected, but how long did it take for you to get to this position where you can compete and are winning multiple tournaments and and being one of the best bowlers on tour? How long did it take to get uh, your your form and your technique to that point?
8: Uh, well, the the form and technique is just it's kind of always been there. When I was younger, my dad my dad's been my coach my entire life, and uh, when I was younger, he kind of just gave me the fundamentals and, and let me figure it out and do it my way he just fine tuned it. So, um, everything that I do is just, is very, very natural. Um, there was no real trying to make what I do happen. It just, it just, it just did happen. Um, and it's just been fine tuned along the way. And then, uh, as you go up, you know, going from juniors and and bowling, bigger events, you know, there's always a learning curve. So when I came on the tour, there was a, a few years where I went through a learning curve and, um, finally figured some things out and uh it's been a it's been a good ride ever since
3: all right one last question for you ej this was a really cool i saw it on your instagram story i think motive shared it 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 was all over bowling instagram that 11 years ago at team usa trials as a high school teenager you actually met deandra she was like okay cool yeah fan i'm giving back and then turns out uh, ten years later, you guys are teaming up and, and winning a championship. How, how cool is that being able to look back on a photo like that 10 years uh, between 10 years in between?
8: Yeah, I mean that's that's really cool, and that's what you know the sport's all about. Um, DeAndre is also from Indiana, and uh, we you know kind of shared that connection. There was uh, this, this junior tour in Indiana called TKO. Uh, that was called the Kegler Open. And she had won a, a couple of them. I had won. So we had a, a personal connection. So I went up to her and I, uh you know, just some high school kid. And then uh, she didn't know who I was, which rightfully so at the time. And uh, she asked somebody later on, like, who's that kid uh, leading the tournament? And they pointed me, at me. and She's like, oh, I just took a picture with him. Maybe I should go ask for his autograph. And then here we are. You know, 10, 11 years later, and uh, being able to hold the event and win is just—it's a—it's a really cool full circle moment um, that it—that it worked out that way.
3: Now, the important question: Has she gotten your autograph now?
8: Oh no, I don't think—I don't think I'm gonna let her have it at this point. <laughs> it seems like uh, not her not having it is working out
3: pretty well. For a second, I thought you were going to, you were kind of leaning towards you were going to big time her, but no, she's doing just fine, uh, sans the EJ Tackett (laughs) autograph I guess. That's right, we've been speaking with EJ Tackett, pro bowler uh, 14 PBA titles, couple majors, and along with his partner Deandra Esbeidi, won the 2022 PBA PWBA Storm Striking Against Breast Cancer Mixed Doubles event this past weekend. EJ, thanks so much for taking some time and joining us. Always a pleasure having you on, and you're always welcome here on the show thanks so much man oh uh, thank you so much for having me on i look forward to doing it we're looking forward to it too ej i think that was his second appearance now tied with kyle troop with two appearances so we'll see who's going to end up taking the lead with a third appearance at some point i'm dominic Jimenez. we got more on the other side this is titillating sports
1: That's eight hundred three nine one eighty seven thirteen.
7: You're listening to Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back to the show. Dominic Jimenez on the microphone. Heard of Coast to Coast and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. Very excited to welcome in my next guest. He is director Dave Was Cabbage. And his 2014 Cult Classic Suburban Sasquatch is available this August from Visual Vengeance on Blu-ray. That's right. Perhaps the most beloved and recognizable shot on video movie of the last two decades. This cult classic sees its first time ever on Blu-ray and is packed with a bunch of cool bonus features including uh, new commentary from Dave, uh, riff tracks version of the movie, archival behind the scenes featurette, making the CGI for Suburban Sasquatch, the director's PO view with interviews, limited edition slipcover for the first printing only, collectible mini poster, sticker set, a little bit of everything, and Dave... For starters, give us a little synopsis of the film for the people who aren't familiar with Suburban Sasquatch. Absolutely. First
4: off, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Always love talking about the films and the process of filmmaking. Suburban Sasquatch, so in a nutshell, this is my vision of the Bigfoot Sasquatch mythos, where he's actually not really something that's deep in the woods, but. He's in a wooded area of the United States where suburbia is encroaching on his land. And it's intertwined with the Native American indigenous people's mythology of Sasquatch. And I wanted to build a huge story set amongst that backdrop that brought everything together about all these different facets of Bigfoot we hear about, like why doesn't he show up in photographs sometimes and why does he? Uh, What is it with, with what seems like he has powers and And I've always was so used to Sasquatch films where he just mildly walked by and someone would freak out. So I really wanted to get some of his anger and aggression and and raw power out there to uh, to scare the audience.
3: What is it with America's fascination with the Sasquatch, the Yeti? They just can't get enough of Bigfoot. What, what, what it, from, from your experience, you know, kind of gathering information to make this movie, what was your impression of why we love the Yeti or the Sasquatch so much?
4: I don't think it's anything different than most peoples around the world where there are culturally significant, fearsome uh, uh, idols, if you will, that allow the people to gather together for a story around the campfire or something that warns you not to go into a certain area like uh, a a fairy tale mythos, if you will, that prevents us from venturing too far. But you combine that with the fact that, you know, there's been a lot of mysterious sightings over the years and a lot of uh, thought been putting into tracking them down as of recently. People are fascinated by something that's mysterious. We're fascinated by the occult. We're fascinated by what we can't tangibly touch. I mean, let's face it. The entire modern world is based around Light at nighttime, bright colors, everything is, is broken down scientifically to the quantum level, and yet we can still retain this bit of glorious, childlike fascination with something out there that's haunting us and preventing us, and, and we want to drive forward and find that out. We're inquisitive beings. We can't help it. We want to dive into that.
3: And what was the inspiration to re-release this in, in Blu-ray? It was originally shot on video, which kind of gives it that old-school, kind of grainy kind of, uh, well, not home movie, but... You know, it wasn't a high-end, super insane, high-def camera. So what was the inspiration to take something uh, a- a- that was shot on video and kind of turn it into a Blu-ray and kind of remaster it?
4: Uh, there's been a lot of interest in this film. Like, a- every few years uh, the film gets some more interest and more people review it and they talk about it. And, uh, you know, like, I think in general the American culture tends to like cult movies and they resurface after a while and they gain popularity. And this is Survivor Sasquatch swing back into uh, into the limelight. You know, a few years ago, Red Letter Media and a few other people on YouTube had been doing a lot of reviews of the film, and, it, and it's really caught on. And as they go to conventions and speak with people, a lot more strangers would be interested. And, and some of our films that we've done otherwise have been popular in, in Japan or India, let's say. So sometimes there tends to be a little bit of rise in interest, and this happens to be one that picks up. And I think it's also because... Again, there's been a lot of TV shows about Sasquatch and Bigfoot and the mysteries uh, that are out there that people want to look into. And, and like, oh, let, let's dive into this film. And a lot of the reviews are, are lending into its cult favorability. So I think that's brought it back. Uh, it just so happens to be that uh, working with the companies, uh, while they releasing to get the film out there, they were really helpful and wonderful about getting this in the street and enhancing some of the footage. Because, you know, to your point, you know, this film was shot in 2003 on very rudimentary uh, filmmaking equipment. I mean, I'll be honest. the The, the cast wrap party costs more than the film itself. But the fact <laughs> that now we've had a chance to enhance it and put it out there and get some great artwork out there and uh, have even the Rift tracks version. The Rift track uh, folks are phenomenal, right? Like they did a great job with the movie. Uh, it's just been a chance to bundle it together. Such a treat to have it out there. I mean, I, I'm just so thrilled by it.
3: And, you know, you mentioned the, the fan base for films that become cult classics uh, as, as the director of the film. How does it feel for you knowing that this film that you put out, you know, almost 20 years ago has indeed become a cult classic? And as you said, seems to have renewed interest on a yearly basis.
4: Let, let me put my intellectual artistic eyeglasses on and say, well, I expected it. But the honest to God's truth is is that uh, I never imagined that this would happen, right? I, You know, as an artist, you create something and you leave it out there and it's subjective. The world has to look at it and see through their own lens what they perceive and take away from it. Some of my other films have been criticized heavily or not criticized and seen so many different ways. And I just get a thrill out of people being entertained no matter what it is. But at this stage, to have so many people contact me or inquire about the sequels or, or, you know, try to talk shop about what I meant by a certain scene is thrilling because it's, it really was intentional just to make people enjoy it and have a good time. Whether you're afraid of it, whether you laugh at it, whether whether you share it with people, it's up to you. It's the fact that that's happening is thrilling to me. I, I just I love to be able to think that I'm relieving the world a bit of a, of its pain and giving some joy in some way and, and who knows, maybe inspire people to Make a better version, make a different movie, or inspire them to make a movie all to themselves. It's just absolutely such a wonderful treat. How nice.
3: We're speaking with director David Wascavage. His uh, 2014 2014, cult classic Suburban Sasquatch is available this August from Visual Vengeance on Blu-ray. A couple more questions for you, uh, David. Uh, what were some of the challenges that you had of originality when in when creating a film where the you know the main character, for, for lack of a better term, is the Sasquatch, which is something we've seen in so many different forms of media, like you mentioned now. There's Netflix docs and all that kind of stuff. So uh, taking a, a character like the Sasquatch that is so well known across America, even globally, what were some of the challenges you had in in creating originality for something that people are so familiar with.
4: I had first mover advantage. So I wrote the script in early 2003. And at that time, there was only maybe three or four Sasquatch-like movies that really lent themselves to the 70s, because that's when it was really more popular then, about him creeping around and maybe getting aggressive here and there. So I thought, you know, uh, after I did the original movie, of Fungicide, where it was something completely bonkers, I thought, if I only had one more film in me in terms of budget and time, what would it be? Well, it has to be Bigfoot. He's near and dear to my heart. I always loved it. And I thought, there's nothing out there that has an entire mythos behind it, an entire story. So I wrote this script, and I thought, boy, if I really, really wanted to put my heart into this, this is actually three films. So I wrote three scripts, three films. And I put enough in the first film where if I never got to the other two, there's enough there that would explain itself. But if I did get to shoot the sequels, then there's enough that allows a little mystery in there to say, oh, now I get it or understand why that character made that. So I had the advantage of creating this whole world myself on where the story wasn't just about this monster that kills things. The monster can be sympathetic. The monster has a story. The monster has some relation to the story overall. And it wasn't just, simply people running and screaming. There had to be some substance there for you to pull onto. You end the film happy because you've actually gone through an adventure yourself. It wasn't just A to B. You don't know what's going to happen next. And I wanted to have that because I felt like a cult film has to have a little bit more than just slap gags and humor and blood. It has to have something with a little bit of meat to it.
3: That is the voice of director David Wascavage. His 2004 cult classic Suburban Sasquatch is available this August from Visual Vengeance on Blu-ray. Perhaps the most beloved and recognizable shot on video movie of the last 20 years. The cult classic sees its first time ever on Blu-ray and is packed with bonus features. Dave, thanks so much for taking some time and joining us. Congrats on the release on Blu-ray and maybe we'll we'll keep an eye out for maybe uh, 20 years later one of those sequels, huh?
4: And thanks for you and your viewers. Hey, that sequel's already in production, man. It's only going to be a couple of years. I just need to get some time. But the, thanks to you and your listeners. I appreciate all the time.
3: There it is. It's on the way, Suburban Sasquatch 2, Sasquatch's range or something like that. Dave, thanks so much. Again, I'm Dominic Mendez. This is Titulating Sports on the Sports Byline USA Broadcast Network.
7: You're listening to Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back into the show. Waiting on uh, our next guest, Felipe Esparza. He's going to be at Helium Philly. So we'll we'll, we'll, we'll chat with him if he uh, calls me back. In the meantime, you can give me a call. 1-800-878-PLAY. one 800 878 eight75. To nine, uh, we will have an open segment at twenty-five in the next hour. So, in about forty-five minutes, we'll have an open segment. Otherwise, I got guests. So, there's so many different ways I I can go here. But in in if Felipe does call before he gets on, we we got to start with the MLB trade deadline, and more importantly, Juan Soto. Rejected multiple uh, offers from the Nationals. Multiple monster extensions. He's a World Series champion. And uh, calling back, it looks like that might be Felipe. Let me. Oh no! And all right, maybe Darren's in the other room picking it up because. Uh, oh yeah, there he goes. There, yeah. So I think, I think I think we got it. Okay. Very welcome to excited in my uh, very excited to welcome in my next guest that is comedian Felipe Esparza. You can check him out at Helium Philly this week. One show Thursday, two on Friday, and two on Saturday. Felipe, welcome to the show. How does it feel being back on tour, back in the clubs?
11: I'm so happy to be back, man. I was bored at home, man. My <laughs> my wife, you know, she's she had a bachelor's degree and a master's, so she was like a Zoom teacher and a dean. Class, you know, -hmm. she was doing a lot of Zoom Zoom teaching, and um, and my son was doing Zoom classes, and I felt like the janitor of the Zoom class. (laughs) speaking of, I I was a Zoom, I was a Zoom custodian. I
3: I think that might be the first time I've heard somebody use that title. I hope you update uh, your resume with Zoom custodian. Now speaking of. Uh, Zoom? Did you did you do any Zoom shows or outdoor shows or rooftop shows during the pandemic?
11: I did one Zoom show, and it was a, a, a part comedy, part musical. It was five different um, Tex Mex bands and um, Spanish bands, and I hosted from Los Angeles in a in a in an outside studio they made for COVID. And, I, and um, everybody else was in Corpus Christi, some people were in Houston, other people in San Antonio, one guy in San Diego, and they were all in different studios. And then I interviewed people that were, um, that, that were I guess they were um, tested for COVID and they were neg- negative, mm-hmm. but it was all weird, man, weird. And I went to comedy clubs where there was a, a plate of glass between me and the audience. It felt like the audience was in a fish aquarium.
3: <laughs> even more so than just being on stage, too, where everybody's got their eyes yeah. on you. And you know what? It's one of the f- the weird things about you know I'd imagine having the Zoom shows and even just the plexiglass at clubs is uh, with with stand up comedy the the reaction is instant. I can say something on here and somebody will hear it and. I won't know what they think about it until they decide to tweet me and say, oh, hey, Tom, that was that thing you said last week was stupid. Whereas with stand-up comedy, you say something, and if people think it's funny, they're going to laugh. If they think it's dumb, they're going to not laugh. It, the instant reaction. So I think that's got to be a huge disconnect, having a physical barrier, uh, or in with Zoom's case, not even being in the same area, uh, with the audience, yeah?
11: Yeah. A tough show that I did was my first show. When the pandemic during the pandemic, one of my hardest shows, like before I did any the show, I did a drive-in show in Irvine. It was upstairs on top of the mall parking lot.
3: <laughs> were, were, was the uh the were people honking in order to uh, show laughter? Yes. Oh, the honks were the applause breaks. <laughs> that is so rough because it's, it's like okay, it's it's not just laughter where you can talk over laughter. If people are honking, you can't keep talking, yeah.
11: Yeah, people were honking, and um, luckily there was at least 50 trucks, and they were sitting on their truck beds, so I I got to hear their laughs, but I only heard 50 laughs out of um, 600 cars.
3: Ooh, that's a good crowd at least, though.
11: Oh yeah, man, those guys were, they were were drunk, man. (laughs) Some people were barbecuing. And um, I live in Los Angeles, so man, there was police officers checking for tags.
3: <laughs> Come for the stand-up, stay for the uh, for the tailgating. Yes,
11: All right. The it, car may be towed tonight.
3: There you go. And uh, you know, I, I was looking into doing and doing some research, and and you've had a podcast, the What's Up Fool podcast, since 2014, and, and you've kept it going. That's a that's basically before everybody had a podcast and before podcasts were cool. So, how did you get that started and have you uh, successfully continued it to this day?
11: Yes, I still have my podcast. We're like we're getting close to episode 400 and we have advertisements now and we have enough we make enough to have a studio now. No, so we have our own studio in Bourbon, California, with our uh,
3: office. No, that's super cool. We've seen the kind of the kind of rise of podcasts over the last five years, so the fact that you've been at it for almost 10 is uh, is pretty impressive. Uh, we're speaking with— It's
11: 10 now? I've been doing it for 10?
3: Almost. it's a, I see 2014, so that's that's eight years, so you're, yeah. you're, you're almost at oh, 10 Oh
11: wow. wow, I didn't know that. That's a long time.
3: Time to start planning for uh, the big 10th anniversary show then. Yeah, man, I will, man. We're going to do a live, a live
11: podcast one day, somewhere.
3: There you go. And uh, with the, the world opening up, hopefully uh, there will be a good crowd for that. Uh, we're speaking with uh, comedian Felipe Esparza. You can check him out at Helium Philly this week. One show Thursday, two on Friday, two on Saturday. And you've got a couple different stand-up specials on Netflix. And, and with so many different streaming platforms now, uh, it's not as easy to get a comedy special on Netflix. So h- how does it feel to have a couple up there?
11: I'm very fortunate that um, my first Netflix special was not made at Netflix special. It was in the beginning when they were buying specials. They were buying specials, second party specials. Like mm. if someone had a special that was that uh, that was, that premiered on HBO or Showtime, and that particular comedian owned a property, he was allowed to sell it. But I didn't own mine, but the people who produced my special on Showtime sold it to Netflix and they lived there for at least seven years or, yeah, I would say it was there for seven or eight years. And that really moved my sales, my ticket sales. And then they took it down. So this is a funny story. I went in, I went in, I had a meeting for Netflix to do a new special. And when I got to the Netflix office, there was a red, bright Lamborghini no, or a Ferrari. I don't know what it was, but it was like a, a Lamborghini. It was, it was red and you can, it had a, a see-through plated glass. You could see the engine on the front of the car. And, and I thought, wow, the guy from Netflix, the owner of Netflix is here to meet me. He even parked his red Netflix car in front of the building. And when I get there, it was Kevin Hart's Lamborghini. Wow. And he he had he, would have, he, he had a meeting for a comedy special, too. And when he was coming out with his manager, Pookie, a friend of mine, I asked him, how did your meeting go? He goes, yeah, man, we just got a deal for a new special. Don't worry, man. I just warmed him up for you. <laughs>
3: So so when it came to And this,
11: then when I get to Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. And when I get to the, the when I get to the office, they give me a deal too. But I gotta do um, two Netflix specials, one in English, one in Spanish, for the price of one.
3: <laughs> and hey, so you got the Netflix special or two technically, and you can say that yeah. at one, and you can say at one point Kevin Hart opened for you, right?
11: Yeah, man, he warmed them up for me, bro. It was awesome. <laughs> Uh, he, didn't, he didn't even run the lights.
3: There, there you go. Um, so you you won last Comic Standing in 2010. Um, how did that kind of propel your career yes, forward? Because you with competition reality shows, the winners don't always. Th- that's not a, a a guarantee to succeed. So how did you take that win and kind of uh, turn that into you know television show appearances, a successful stand up uh, career? How did that kind of propel you forward in your career?
7: <laughs> well.
11: When I won the $250,000, my son's mom filed for child support. <laughs> and she ended up keeping $140,000 in cash, tax-free, by the way. Oh, man. And I ended up paying the taxes for that. But NBC let me know ahead of time, and I incorporated myself. And instead of them taking my whole check and then giving me my money, I NBC told me, they gave me financial advice. And they told me to incorporate myself and they and they'll hold on to the check to incorporate myself. And then they'll write the check to the corporation, and then I'll write a check from the corporation to the to the child support office. So that was smart of them to help they really help me be a better business comedian, you know, when I won that summer standing. Because I donated money to a lot of charities and um and I bought um, I bought myself a bicycle, a nice bicycle to get around. <laughs> and I went to do a show in Washington, D.C. And I met one of the comedians on the Latin Kings of Comedy, Alex Raimundo. And I told him that I want to do a one-hour special. And he talked to his manager. And the next day, his manager called me up and said, Felipe, you want to do a comedy special in two weeks? And I said, oh, all right. So I did a comedy special in two weeks, and that's a comedy special that was on Showtime for about two years, and then it was sold to um, Netflix. And my next, my second special, I saved up money that I had left over from Last Comic Standing and some of the money from my tour. My wife and I, Lisa Esparza, we had a show in San Jose and we used the money to produce our own special. And we got the the whole crew. I even, I'm credited as craft service (laughs) because I was in charge of all the snacks (laughs) for the crew. Mm. Hamburgers, water, um, coffee cups. So, long story short, we did the special at the San Jose Improv because I was performing there and we got got the, the theater for free because I'm performing there. And we had a packed house so the show was sold out. And then my friend cut it. It was sold. My agent sold it to HBO for like four times of what we paid to produce it. And they they didn't buy it, they leased it for two years. And they aired on HBO. And now I, I still own the special.
3: Oh, that's awesome. Uh, we've been speaking with comedian and very savvy businessman, Felipe Esparza. Uh, you can check him out at Helium Philly. That's right, the Greater Philadelphia area. This week he's got a show Thursday, two on Friday, two on Saturday, and you can check out his specials on all over the place. They're they're everywhere. Uh, Felipe, thanks so much for taking some time and joining us. Next time you're in uh, in the San Francisco and you're at uh Cobs with a punchline, drop on by. We'd love to have you in. I love to
11: have beyond man. Hopefully one day they'll book me. They never booked me there before.
3: Well, that's that'll be even more reason to celebrate once they do and we get you in studio. Uh, Felipe, thanks so much, Hell yeah. man. Never, hey,
11: bro. Hell yeah.
3: All right. We're looking forward to it, and hell yeah. it's Felipe Esparza. Make sure to check him out. Helium Philly this weekend. I'm Dominic Mendez. This is Titulating
12: Sports.
7: You're listening to Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: All right. Welcome back into the show. Closing down the hour. I'll talk some more about Juan Soto, but really quick. Uh, pending Eric Hosmer's approval. What? Yeah, Eric Hosmer has a no trade to the Nationals, and he's part of the trade. So if this trade goes through, the Nationals got rid of the remainder of Eric Hosmer's deal. I think he's got three years, $39 million left. And they got Juan Soto, and they're getting Josh Bell. Now, they gave up all of their top prospects. Mackenzie Gore, Robert Hassel III, CJ Abrams, outfielder James Wood, and pitcher Harleen Susana. Now, yes, that's a lot to give up, but you know what? If none of those guys pans out, you basically just got a prospect, maybe an older prospect, who is an all-star, a World Series champion. Juan Soto's 23, and you've got him for two more years. Just the the amount of people that I've seen from Giants fans and from not Giants fans, the amount of people that were saying, I wouldn't give up all of my prospects for Juan Soto. I used to be like that. And and then my Giants would trade prospects I had an attachment to for vets that I was unimpressed with. And then those prospects never did anything. Now, sure, there are misses. Luis Castillo for Casey McGee. Uh, Zach Wheeler for Carlos Beltran. There are misses. But for every one of those, there's, Rick likes to mention it, Tommy Joseph for Hunter Pence. Tim Alderson, who was considered untouchable with Madison Bumgarner for Freddie Sanchez. Tim Alderson never made it past double A, I think. So when you can get a 23-year-old superstar who's already been a champion, you do it. So I'll keep an eye on this. We've got another hour of titillating sports. Keep an eye and see if there's any update. If uh, they've given Eric Hosmer some extra money to waive the trade, or they've taken him out, or Whatever it might be. So I'm Dominic Menes. This is State of Sports.
11: USA
9: Radio News with Lance Pride.
12: Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has begun as the speaker arrived in Taiwan Tuesday night local time. Pelosi and her delegation disembarked from a U.S. Air Force transport plane at Songshan Airport in downtown Taipei and were greeted by Taiwan's Foreign Minister Joseph Wu and Sandra Outerkirk, the top U.S. representative in Taiwan. California and Illinois on Monday joined New York State and the city of San Francisco in declaring a health emergency over the monkeypox outbreak. Monkeypox, which has spread to more than 70 countries, was declared a global emergency last month by the WHO. California State Senator Scott Wiener on KCRA News. We're seeing increased cases in other counties as well, and those other counties don't have the same public health
9: infrastructure that San Francisco and L.A. have or the same resources. And so for those other counties,
12: even a smaller number of cases can be really problematic. USA Radio News.
13: Wendy Bell here for my friends at Swiss America. Did you know the U.S. Constitution authorizes only two forms of legitimate money, gold and silver? That's right. But our government abandoned gold and silver a half century ago. Meanwhile, gold and silver prices have rocketed in recent years due to growing economic uncertainty. So, to help my listeners, Swiss America has a very special offer today. Silver Walking Liberty Half Dollars at the amazingly low price of $12.50 each delivered. You heard me right. $12.50. Call now to reserve your silver coins at 800 630 1490. That's 800-630-1490. Silver Walking Liberty Half Dollars for just $12.50 each delivered while supplies last. Put a silver lining in your financial portfolio now by calling 800-630-1490. 800-630-1490.
12: More than a dozen newspaper groups are suing the Texas Department of Public Safety for illegally withholding public records about the Uvalde school shooting. The organizations, including the Texas Tribune and ProPublica, filed suit on Monday after having each filed requests under the Texas Public Information Act for information about the police response to the deadly shooting in May. Iran may have the nuclear weapon.
3: Social media accounts
14: linked to Iran's military claim the nation is able to build nuclear warheads if needed. At the United Nations, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken says nuclear proliferation is a serious issue. As we gather today Pyongyang is preparing to conduct its seventh nuclear test. North Korea withdrew from the nuclear non-proliferation treaty in 2003. Secretary Blinken adding that Iran is also accelerating its nuclear program. From the USA Radio News
12: Phoenix Bureau, I'm Tim Berg. USA Radio News. The United States on Monday imposed sanctions on Chinese and other firms as said helped sell tens of millions of dollars in Iranian oil and petrochemical products to East Asia. The U.S. Treasury said the United States State Department imposed the sanctions on a total of six companies, four based in Hong Kong, one in Singapore, and one in the United Arab Emirates. The actions will freeze U.S.-based assets and generally bar Americans from dealing with them. Nancy Pelosi is in Taiwan and China is not happy.
8: If House Speaker Pelosi insists on visiting Taiwan, China will take resolute and strong measures to defend its sovereignty and territorial integrity.
0: As for what measures exactly we will take, Let's wait and see if she dares making the visit.
12: Republican Senator Tom Cotton responds.
0: Nancy Pelosi last week, a rare conversation I had
14: with her. We disagree on most things. But once the Biden administration leaked this trip, I think in an effort to deter Nancy Pelosi from going, I thought it was essential that she go, that she show that the United States will not be pushed around by Chinese communists, that the Chinese communists cannot tell any American citizen, much less an elected member of the United States Congress, when and where we can travel. I'm disappointed that the Biden White House Has tried to put pressure on a speaker of their own party not to travel to Taiwan, which is a long standing tradition, as Newt Gingrich said earlier, of American legislators traveling to Taiwan because of our relationship
0: with that self governing island.
12: Lance Pry, USA Radio News.
0: Do you own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? Are you paying high fees and getting low returns? If so,
3: Welcome back to the show. My San Francisco Giants heart hurts. The trade for Juan Soto has been completed. They just took Eric Hosmer out. He had all the power, he could have stopped this madness. (sighs) What a shame. That's disappointing. He did reject the trade, but he's just not going to be part of the deal now. Dang. It did not actually hinge. On Hosmer being part of it, oh, that's disappointing. They just took him out. Which I don't know why the Nationals would want him in the first place, unless the the Padres were like, "Hey, if you take Hosmer, we'll give you even more good prospects." That's the only thing I can think of. Because, 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 but if that's the case, why wouldn't they? Unless they really loved C.J. Abrams and Robert Hassel, a third and Mackenzie Gore, who's hurt, might need Tommy John. If, if that's the case, why wouldn't you just go to the Dodgers or the Cardinals and be like, what's your offer? Let's see what you have. What's the best you can do? It's not like Rick Harrison from Pawn Stars. Best I can do is five bucks. No, no, no. You can get whatever prospects you want, almost. Unless they absolutely had to have the guys from the Padres. That's the only way that makes sense that they would have um, gone and done that and had been willing to take on Hosmer. So now it makes a better deal for the Nationals because now they don't have to deal with Hosmer and his contract. A friend of mine joked, uh, for a brief period of time, actually, uh, unfortunately it was a brief period of time because the deal's done without Hosmer, but it was the most power Eric Hosmer has had all season. (laughs) The chance to derail the Juan Soto trade. So, yeah, Nationals. Somewhere Mike Sempervivi is uh, sad. I, I may have to call him later this hour just to to get a, a live reaction from a Nationals fan. But that's 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 rough if you're a Nats fan. You've had Scherzer, Trey Turner, Bryce Harper, Juan Soto. They all gone. In Washington, it's a big big area. It's not like it's a small market anyway. No, Parker.
15: Right now, sports betting is the fastest growing industry in the world. To consistently cash tickets at the sports books, it's best to be armed with the right plays from the best sports bettors in the business. That's what you'll get at AgainstTheNumber.com. At AgainstTheNumber.com, you'll get specialists with decades of experience betting multiple sports at a high level and many sports-specific packages from the NFL to college basketball to cricket to soccer to the European tour that gives you a consistent edge on the sports book. For a highly skilled, reasonably priced team of premium sports handicappers focused on one thing and one thing only beating the books at their own game. Visit againstthenumber.com. That's againstthenumber.com.
7: You're listening to Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back into the show. It is 12 after of the 3rd hour, which means it's time to talk with the guest from againstthenumber.com and let's see if I can get through this way better than I did yesterday. I was tripping over my own words a lot. GuessAnumber.com is a highly skilled, reasonably priced team of premium sports handicappers focused on one thing and one thing only, and that's beating the sports books at their own game. They cover every sport worldwide from the NFL to college basketball to soccer to cricket to tennis to European hockey, and all of them are proven winners. They offers full season, end of current season, one month, one week, one day, and one year specialist specific packages. The prices are reasonable. The tracking and distribution process is simple, and the results are real. Enough baseball for now. Let's switch things up a little bit and head over to Noah Parker, who's the basketball, the NBA guy at AgainstTheNumber.com. Noah, welcome into the show. And I had a chance to talk yesterday a bunch about Bill Russell. So, as a basketball guy, I just wanted to ask you if you wanted to share a couple thoughts on uh, Bill Russell's lasting impact on the game.
16: Well, you know. He was a. uh, I mean, he was more than a pioneer. I mean, he wasn't like a pioneer, pioneer, but he was kind of like almost like an experimental pioneer. From what I've read and learned about him, like they didn't know how it was going to actually work, and then they threw him in the mix, especially in a city like Boston, where you know it's they didn't know what to expect. A lot of people were like, "What?" You know, this this, and then you know they couldn't say no to the talent, so it was kind of like uh, they had to just go with it, and you know it ended up kind of. I mean, obviously all the championships they got and. I was just the winner so how can you say anything bad about him um he's up there with the top 5 they put him in the goat category all the time and he's just a guy that you know everybody just looked up to as a legend I never got to obviously see him play in person or it's all just been <laughs> videos that are grainy and you know tough for anybody in my generation to know how good he actually was but that's the same with guys like Will Chamberlain too and and Kareem that you know you didn't see how good they were in their prime so um big loss for the for the NBA community of course you know it was kind of weird when he wasn't there for the finals cuz you know you always see him there yeah. given the, you know with the trophy and the mvp and everything so the time was coming but he lived a pretty long great life
3: no agreed and and just in terms of his impact on the game and everything he was also successful like you said as as a player himself so uh let's transition here nba off season time Uh, The Warriors, my Warriors, are the champions. So so let's start there. Draymond Green has come out and said he wants a four-year max extension. Andrew Wiggins is due up for an extension. He's going to get big bucks. Jordan Poole is due up for a big extension coming up also. So how do you see this shaking out? Uh, Technically, Lacob can pay everybody but he, there's no way you, you can feasibly have what would that be like five or six max contracts on the books there's no way that happens so which combination of guys do you see staying in golden state and, and who do you see heading to uh greener pastures if you will
16: maybe yellow or passage, uh, passages passages <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm hearing the rumors of him and lebron somehow linking up somewhere in the right they're hanging out now they're buddy buddies and you know he did his job in in golden state and he says adamantly that he's the reason, you know, that they've won all these. You know, I'm, I'm done. I've been the dirty. I've done all the dirty work. I've been that guy. Deserve a max contract extension, and he's the reason that Warriors even made it to the finals. He said, he said, quote, "We wouldn't be in the finals if it weren't for me." So, I mean, he wants that max, and do you think he deserves a max? Because I don't. I mean, he. There was times where he looked like the MVP, but to get a max contract, uh, I mean. I uh, I can see a lot of instances in the past where players have got max contracts and have definitely underperformed from what they did before that to get that much money. And uh, he's just not the type of guy I would trust with a a long-term money that's going to handcuff the franchise.
3: Yeah, at this point I wouldn't just because there are so many – other guys that are due up to get paid and and it's right. one of those things where as a warriors fan i'm appreciative for what draymond has done i i thank him for all of the titles i thank him for his work his heart his passion but i'm okay letting him go at this point it's 100 it's just how it is Can't blame. yeah um moving on to some guys who might get traded there is it's the offseason rumor mill galore we got guys like kd kyrie russ donovan mitchell out of those four guys, how many of you? How many of them do you see staying with their current teams?
16: I think all of them, but Donovan Mitchell. Um, I think he's got to go. With Gobert, leaving, he knows that you know his chances diminished tremendously when they couldn't even win with the with a pretty good roster that they had. Joe Ingles, when they had they had a good chance to make something happen there. I think he's got to go to a bigger city. I I mean, as a Knicks fan. I didn't want to see him there because I think he's more of a chucker than anything, and maybe the Knicks need that kind of aggressive player. But I think he would mess up the the core that they have with the young guys. And I wanted a more stable um, veteran, as you can say. I mean, yeah, he's he's a uh, he's had some games in the bubble where he he showed out and he could put up the points and numbers. But I just don't trust his brand of, of play of just you know thinking he can be the number one guy. Didn't work in Utah, but I think he's definitely out of there somewhere. Um, hopefully the Knicks don't give up the farm for him, but that would be such a Knicks thing to do. Uh, wouldn't surprise me one bit. We have done things in the past that made me scratch my head, so why not another one, right?
3: Right. Uh, you mentioned the Knicks. Uh, them and the 76ers, the Knicks for Jalen Brunson and the Sixers for James Harden being investigated for tampering. You've watched enough basketball, and you've been around it long enough. Are there real expectations on any penalties they might get given the amount of and I'm going to use air quotes here tampering that actually goes on in the NBA? <laughs> Nothing's going to happen, right?
16: No, I mean fines here and there with draft picks. If We saw the Dolphins manager get a tampering um uh, fine of 1.5 million dollars for the Tom Brady tampering, Sean Payton thing. I mean, it doesn't really it, it can it can affect stuff internally, but I mean, long run uh everyone tampers it's just how how much you tamper just like every girl's crazy it's just how crazy is she you know it's it's, it's, all, it's always it's always happening you know it's not going to ever stop and people give uh interviews and quotes all the time where they're tampering but they're just answering the question so uh it's it's something that that will continue to happen especially in the NBA and in all major uh sport franchises in my opinion
3: Agreed. Um, have you been surprised that there hasn't been a lot of big free agent movement? Uh, most of, I, I look at you know, CBS had a list of like the top 20 free agents. Most of them were re-signings. There were a couple uh, new signings elsewhere. Colin Sexton's still out there. Miles Bridges obviously out there because nobody wants to touch anything to do with him right now. Um, are you surprised at the lack of big free agent movements that we've seen this period?
16: Uh, yes, because it's happened so much in the past. But I'm a, I'm actually glad it's not. You know, well, I'm so tired of um, come September, October, having to go through every roster again and seeing all these changes. And you know, I'm sure it'll ramp up again. You know, with summer league ending now and um, when they start going into camp, but it, it just seems like every year it's just it's just they're just shuffling the deck so much. You know, you, besides some of the main core pieces, you know. It's, it was, it's so many different guys. I mean, I mean, I get it two years ago during the pandemic, they were bringing a lot of old veterans like Joe Johnson, guys like that in. But now that it's pretty much um, all quiet on the Western front, that these these teams, these players, you know, they, you kind of want to stick around. All this moving around, I get it. You know, you want to play with your boys. You want to, you know, build a, a good roster. But, you know, you just keep moving around. You're never going to figure figure anything out. The um, A lot of times these teams, like the Spurs, they had a, a core amount of players, uh, a certain amount of players that stayed there multiple years. You're just moving around the the, the pieces, but uh, I think that, you know eventually it's going to get back to where not every off season everybody's leaving the team and going somewhere different. Everyone's asking for trades, and it's just starting to ruin the NBA. And Adam Silver made a point about that when KD requested a trade, even though he's still under contract. So hopefully that kind of dies down a little bit because it's just it's almost getting ridiculous.
3: One last quick question for you, Noah. We saw LeBron play in the Drew League. DeRozan. Uh, we saw Paolo Bancaro and Chet Holmgren combine for like 90 points in uh, Jamal Crawford's Pro-Am. How soon before these things start being streamed, in you know, the NBA or or even just the the the, the tournaments and stuff in general monetize what's happening right now with the the rise in popularity of off season basketball?
16: I think when they start putting betting lines on it. Um, then maybe you'll see a little bit more of it on stream. Like they have the summer league televised everywhere, but you can bet on it. Um, these games are so popular off the court, but it's more street ball wise. So once you start getting referees and a scoreboard and all that, to so where it being you know it'll get more scrutinized that way. Especially if people have wagers on it, not just betting internally. Um, but that, in my opinion, that's when I think it'll really
3: blow up. That makes perfect sense because you just got to follow where the money is. We have been speaking. We've been speaking with Noah Parker of AgainstTheNumber.com, the the NBA expert. Noah, pleasure always chatting with you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time.
16: Thank you for having me, as always.
3: Um, Our pleasure. I'm Dominic Jimenez. Coming up on the other side, I have contacted him. I will be speaking with Nationals fan Mike Sempervivi to get his thoughts on the Juan Soto trade on the other side. I'm Dominic Jimenez. This is Titter Lightning Sports.
9: I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who've helped people that have been injured or wronged. If you've had a revision or removal surgery of a hernia mesh implant after 2008, pay close attention to this message. Hernia mesh manufacturers have recalled some of the mesh material that may have been used in your surgery due to high failure rate. The FDA has even blamed the recalled mesh material for some of the worst of the health issues reported by doctors and patients. If you've had two or more hernia surgeries for the same issue and you're having severe complications, call the legal helpline now. You could receive a free cash award and have your medical expenses covered. And there's no upfront cost to you. They only get paid if you win. So
1: please call now. 800-817-2968. 817 2968
7: This is titillating sports with Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back into the show. Next segment, be joined by uh, bowling Hall of Famer Deandra Azbadi. But in the meantime, we need to go to the northeast coast of the United States and check in on Nationals fan. And co-host of Wrestling Observer Live, heard weekdays at noon, replays at 5 Pacific, Mike Sempervivi. Mike, how are you feeling?
14: You know how I'm feeling. I'm feeling terrible right now. You know, you you had to go out of your way to to call me on my phone just to rub it in about Juan Soto. And I knew this was coming. It was just a matter of where. And with the new ownership group coming in, unless somebody decided to put their foot down and go no we are willing to go up to 600 million dollars or whatever it's going to take to sign Juan Soto. He was going to be out the door. I kind of hoped we'd have him till the end of the season, but alas that's not to be. The Dodgers and the uh the Padres have a point to prove to each other. I heard the uh the Dodgers just a little bit ago uh got Gallo, so you know that that's their move just to just to make a move because they can. And the Padres, they gave up a lot. That's one thing I'm happy about, but it's tough to see a future Hall of Famer walk out the door.
3: Okay, I just need to correct you. I'm not rubbing it in. I don't like it. If if Juan Soto had been traded to the Giants, I would be rubbing it in right now. <laughs> he went to a division rival who's really good, and now the, the Giants are going to be basically competing for third place for the next 10 to 15 years. Trust me, I'm not rubbing it in. Um how frustrating is it for you to have a team that is regionally a big market, like the Nationals, in the capital of the United States, we're crying out loud. They, they win a title, and there's hardly any remnants left of that title, which was won just a few years ago. It, is, is that frustrating to you, seeing that they kind of just blew it up for no reason?
14: It's a little bit tough, but it wasn't because of no reason. And I think there's a lot of people on the outside. They'll look at the fact that they have not paid mega contracts long term to almost anybody. I mean, look at Rendon was, you know, the first one off and there's going to be a limit on what they spend, but they did do a lot of sacrificing and they did go out and attempt to sign Schwerber and Bell last year to try to make some sort of effort and some sort of stab but the reality is their farm system is drained because of all the moves that have been made and when you look at the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Braves and the Padres who continue to load up year after year after year and you're competing with those teams they had to do something and step one was get Scherzer and turn around and bring back Caber Ruiz who looks like that's going to be their everyday catcher now going forward for the next god knows how many years and to make those types of moves to bring back young guys and that's the only silver lining in all of this is depending on what happens with eric Hosmer, and even if we have to eat 39 million dollars if he accepts the trade takes all of his money paid by the nationals and he decides to walk okay we still have abrams We have Mackenzie Gore, which is key to the Nationals because with what they have moving forward, they have really good pitchers. I mean, they're Kate Cavalli, Cole Henry, and Jackson Rutledge who are all at different stages right now, but they look like they're going to be in the rotation in the future. The thing with the Nationals is there's no left-handers at all, really. They have one a little bit lower down, but that's it. So Mackenzie Gore is going to be very important, and he is – a very good pitcher. The, the pitcher, Susanna, they got, you know, who's not being talked about as much because everybody's talking about Hassel and Wood. Susanna is, you know, 6'6", and he is, you know, throwing gas apparently in the miners right now, and it's coming along a lot better than people expected. And when they do the pipeline ratings, it looks like he's going to be heavily increased. So at least we're getting that back. It's going to all depend on what this new ownership group does coming in because if they want to buy it because they want to own a team in the nation's capital, that's going to be tough because Rizzo wants to win. You know He's proven that. He's tried to make moves to win, and I know people have criticized him a little bit, but he at least wants to try to win. He brought a title to town. So if this new ownership group wants to drag their feet and they're not serious about winning – that's when you're going to see a real problem with the franchise and real issues break out. So hopefully we get an ownership group that actually cares and wants to win.
3: You see, I didn't win the lotto the other day, so I cannot be part of that ownership group. Uh, if I was, trust me, I, I'd, I'd help the Nationals try to win. Uh, we're speaking with Mike Sembervivi of Wrestling Observer Live. You can check him out with Brian Alvarez. Actually, in about half an hour uh, coming up after, right after this show and uh, replays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern. Uh, also, a huge Nationals fan, so we're we're breaking down the Juan Soto trade. It was gonna I was gonna ask you how excited you were about the prospects, but you kind of you kind of beat me to that. So with the with a new ownership c- group coming in, there's always so much turnover. Are are there are there rumors of who might be interested? Is it still early stages enough that, that it's going to be sold? But th- who knows what is is there any kind of rumblings on who it might be?
14: You know, I haven't kept my ear to the ground to that media to to hear that. But, you know, Grant Paulson, who's got a lot of national play on Sirius XM, on the MLB network and on their on their Web page. He hasn't really I've never heard him mention anything when he's done anything nationally. He's talked about the sale and talked about the fact that they're going to sale. And and when I see articles, it's you know, that's what it is. But as far as what who is buying it, I, I couldn't tell you. You know, again, just, you know, the hope is when these pieces and obviously, you know, obviously everything's got to go perfectly here and some of these pieces need to come together and guys like Josiah Gray, who they got last year from the Dodgers, needs to keep coming on and needs to be somebody that we can rely on. We need to make a decision about, you know, Steven Strasburg, all that sort of stuff. But if those pieces start coming along, it's easy to add players, you know, in free agency. It's easy to because of some of the draft picks that they've gotten, and some of the the, the prospects that they actually have in rookie ball and in A ball. You know, they'll be able to be traded. They'll be able to become chips later on. So, and and they're going to have to. That that's the one thing the Nationals are going to absolutely have to do because Philadelphia is not going anywhere. The Braves are completely loaded you know, down throughout the system, and they're going to continue to be that way, and the Mets are serious. So, you know, the, the, the near future is going to be very bad. But again, if this ownership group is serious and they want to invest in, in the city and invest in the team, there's a lot of good that can come out of this, and the Nationals can be back in the swing of things within three years, again, if everything works out well.
3: You mentioned uh, Hosmer. He actually was removed from the trade and is now going to Boston. So you don't even have to worry about Eric Hosmer's contract either.
14: (laughs) Good, because that was going to be, you know, that was kind of a, I don't want to say it was a nasty thing to do to him, but it it really puts him in a tough position because you, you, you earn that no trade clause. They obviously wanted him when they brought him in, and of course they're trying to unload him now. You know, the Nationals were there was a lot of that conversation during the All-Star break about Patrick Corbin's contract and what they were going to do with that. And if that was going to be something they were going to have to offload with Soto. So I guess all's well that ends well. He gets his chance to at least kind of pretend to to compete for something up there in Boston, although I just don't think they're going to be able to hold on for much longer.
3: No, they they definitely won't. But it's 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 funny how Hosmer went from beloved when he signed to, Oh my god, this guy's terrible to Oh my gosh, he has all the power. We we he can as a giants he can stop it. Oh my gosh, Eric Hosmer's my favorite player. He can stop this one soto madness. And and then the Padres were like, Yeah, no, nah, we just won't include him. And and that was the part of the trade that made no sense to me anyway, trying to figure out why the nationals were willing to accept Eric Hosmer unless they were just absolutely in enamored with what the Padres were, uh, willing to offer from a prospect perspective or something. So Mike, thank you so much for hopping on, giving us a little insight into the, uh, chaos of the Washington Nationals franchise that's besieged them with this new ownership group, uh, waiting to be found. Uh, Again, everybody, check out Mike Sempervivi, Wrestling Observer Live. Starts in about 40 minutes. He'll be with Brian Alvarez. He'll be talking about uh, WWE. What, wait, today's Tuesday. i will be talking about the recapping Monday Night Raw WWE and maybe previewing WWE NXT and going over the other big news uh, of the day and the week. So, Mike, thanks for hopping on. I'll talk to you in about 40 minutes. Uh, thanks for hopping on. Dom, thank you very much, my friend. Appreciate it. That is Mike Sempervivi, Nationals fan, lives up in the Northeast, talking about uh, the Washington Nationals and what the Juan Soto trade means for the organization. Coming up, Bowling Hall of Famer Deandra Esbaty will join me. She's a champion again after 10 years. So we'll talk to her about uh, the gap between titles and more about her Hall of Fame career. I'm Dominic McManus. This is Tiddling Sports.
7: This is Titillating Sports with Dominic Jimenez on Sports Byline USA.
3: Welcome back to the show heard coast to coast and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. I'm Dominic Jimenez, and I'm very excited to welcome in my next guest. She is a Bowling Hall of Famer with four titles, including a major, the 2012 PWBA Queens, and that is Deandra Azbaty. And along with partner E.J. Tackett, who we talked about uh, talked with about an hour and a half ago, uh, they won the 2022 PBA PWBA Storm Striking Against Breast Cancer Mixed Doubles this past weekend. And, Deandra, let's start with happy birthday. Today's actually your birthday. Uh, what better way to kind of give yourself a present than winning uh, this doubles title over the weekend, right?
2: I thought the present was being on your show, so thank you for having me. And thank you for the birthday wishes. Yeah, I know. it was So far, this week has been uh, pretty good, I would say.
3: And uh, it was your first title in 10 years. What was the feeling of, of kind of con- winning again after an extended period of time like that?
2: Yeah, you know, um, somebody called it like that I had this drought in between my, my titles. But I don't really look at it like that because I am more part-time now. Mm-hmm. I am um, I'm a mom of two really awesome kids, and there was a time where I literally bowled every single event I was on team USA for fifteen years traveled the world it was amazing it was before kids life was e- a little bit easier and then when I decided to have two kids i I really wanted to prioritize them and so um, it might have seemed like a drought to other people, but there were so many really important wins for me during those 10 years from my last title to this one. So I don't really look at it like um, it's been that long. You know what I mean? Because um, I know I've been winning here with them and, and bowling part time, but still being competitive, you know, like you never really lose that competitive spirit. Once you have reached sort of like the top of your, um, of your sport. Mm -hmm. So Um, No matter what tournament I compete in now, I I do believe that I have a chance to win. It's just way harder now because these girls are really good. They are putting in the time that I was putting in when I was right out of college. They're young. You know, a lot of them aren't married. They don't have kids, and they're just in a different, you know, point in their life. And so it is harder now. That's why this, this win was really special to me, not only because EJ is just an incredible bowler, one of the best in the world. We're both from small towns in Indiana. Um, We grew up, you know, a decade apart, but um, we have, I think, so much in common. Um, And that my kids were able to be there for this win the other day. Um, And to know that they got to see me win a title, that was really special to me. The, You know, to be able to share a title with somebody is, I think it's just a different level of, of special than winning on your own. So in just a lot of ways, it was an incredible day.
3: Now, I talked to EJ about, about it about an hour and a half ago, and I'm going to ask you because you're the one who originally posted it. You mentioned e- you and EJ both growing up in Indiana, bowling in similar tournaments uh, 10 years mm-hmm. apart. Tell me the story uh, and, and as how you remembered it and everything Ooh. of meeting EJ at, when he was back in high school some 11 yeah. years ago, and yeah. turns out he ended up leading the tournament that you guys were at after he asked for a photo <laughs> with you, and now uh, here yeah. you are winning a tournament with him.
2: Yeah, I just feel like it was such a full circle moment and so cool. I remember it really vividly. Eleven years ago, bowling team trials to make Team USA. I was walking through the bowling center, talking to some friends, and this little cute little kid is like, "Hey, can I get a picture with you?" And I was like, "Oh, yeah, sure." I noticed his dad was wearing this um, this jacket that was from the Indiana Youth Tour that I bowled when I was a kid, and I just I remember saying to him, "Like, oh yeah, I bowled that tour. That's really cool." Um, didn't even get his name, just got the picture and then went about, you know, the tournament. We bowled the block. The men are separate from the women. So I didn't watch any of the men bowl. And then I looked at the scores after and I noticed an unfamiliar name at the top, which I knew a lot of the bowlers, a lot of the pros bowling. Um, I'd been around for a while and I was like, who, who is this EJ Tackett? And I asked someone, I was like, can you guys point me to who is leading the men's division, um, and they pointed at him and I was like, what? So I went and I found him and I was like, uh, should I be getting a photo with you and getting your autograph? Like what? It was crazy? And nobody really knew him yet. You know, he was just in high school. He was tiny. I mean, he, he still is small, but he was just, you know, to be able to hang with some of the best pros at that age, at his size was really impressive then. And then, you know, 11 years later, he's, He's carved his Hall of Fame career out already, and um, I think that's pretty cool.
3: You mentioned uh, the feeling that you had when you won uh, winning with a partner and how it's different than you know winning uh, as a solo bowler. Um, you've had a lot of success in doubles. This is in your first doubles title. You, you won with Brian Voss a handful of years yeah. ago, a doubles tournament. Uh, you yeah. finished in this same event with Jason Belmonte in second place a few different times. So. <laughs> How are you so successful in doubles? Uh-huh. Because for a sport that is inherently an individual sport, um, uh-huh. at least at the top level, being successful as part of a team is, I, I would assume, have a unique set of challenges, but you seem to uh, thrive in it.
2: I think that's such a great question, and it's something that I've been thinking about the last couple of days, because even 20 years ago, I won this event with, um, with my partner, Dino Castillo, and then that Brian Voss. Uh, title was really special to me because for Brian, that was his 25th title and his last title. And I, I think that the secret is like, I'm really intuitive and I, I feel like I, I know what my partner needs from me, like uh, on an emotional level. And I'm always going to be constant. Like I am not an up and down bowler as far as my emotions go. Like you, when you watch me compete, you don't know if I'm killing it on the lanes or if I'm struggling. And I think that's really important when you're on a team because you don't want a roller coaster partner. You want someone that's going to be even keel, focused on what they're doing. And also, like I just want to have a good time. You know, if you put too much, like, seriousness behind it, everybody is just tighter. Their, their swings are not loose. And I said to EJ before we even started, which, if you think about it, I had an incredible amount of pressure on my shoulders bowling with EJ Tackett. For one, I'm part-time. Uh, For two, he just won last year with Danielle McEwen, and a couple of years ago. I am, um, I, you know, no one could really tell, but I was so nervous. I didn't sleep very much the night before I, which was kind of unlike me. Like I've bowled um, probably half the stops of the PWBA tour this year. And and I've had a pretty good season. I, I had a good finish at the Queens and it's different when you're out there and you're competing alone because you're like, oh, if I mess this up, I'm the only one that it affects and, and I can deal with that. But when you're on a team, you don't want to let down your partner. And so I just really needed to get into the, the right mental space. We had a really good time. I feel like every time my bowl doubles with someone, um, I, we really need to emotionally connect. And EJ and I totally did from the start from a really highly competitive level that he he also was not a roller coaster for me. You know, he struck a lot, like a lot, a lot, a lot. He's such a great bowler, bold, incredible this, this whole weekend. Um, but there, you know, there were bumps in the road for both of us. And we both were really good at just letting it go and not hanging on to it. And I think I think that's the secret to my team success is um, I, I just I feel like I know what they need and they give me what I need.
3: It's funny that you mentioned how focused you were because I was asking EJ how it is. You know, he's won this event with three different partners, what it was like. And he goes, oh, Deandra was great. We we connected. We we got along. He told me the story from 11 years ago. Uh-huh. And he goes, yeah, she was so focused and just even keel that she didn't even know we won. She she, she <laughs> <laughs> When we clinched it, she had oh my gosh, did, did we just win? So yeah. that kind of speaks to how focused you were. We're speaking with yeah. Hall of Fame bowler DeAndra S. Beatty. Uh She won the 2022 PBA PWBA Storm Striking Against Breast Cancer Mixed Doubles event this past weekend with her partner EJ Taggett. A few more questions for DeAndra. Uh, sure. You mentioned your time in college. Um, you won many awards. What was it like um, transitioning from being so successful in college into being a professional because it's not always the same you know you might be the top dog in in college and now you're you're swimming with the the big fish as a professional proverbially so what was that transition like from being successful in college to being the new kid on the block uh, as a professional
2: well I think that I have a really unique um, perspective because I, I did have a really successful collegiate career and then I finally graduated and I was ready to go out on tour, and I couldn't wait to bowl against these women that I had admired growing up. Um, but then the the tour folded that year, the year that I graduated college. The PWVA folded, and then I was like looking around, like what? Like wh- that was my that was my next step. That was the plan. Now what do I do? And I think people think that um, maybe I feel bad about that that I I didn't have the the professional tour during the years that I was at my peak in my career. Um, But I don't look at it like that because I was on Team USA for 15 years. I traveled the world. I've won over 70 international medals. I've met the most incredible people from every corner of this world. And I really don't feel like at that time I was missing anything because even then you couldn't be both. You couldn't be an amateur on Team USA and a professional on the PWBA tour. And so I would have had to make a choice. I don't even really know what my choice would have been totally, but through my twenties, there was no PWBA tour. And that's um, to be able to still be relevant and make a name for myself, despite the fact that, you know, our, our top tier professional league wasn't there. Uh, I'm proud of that. And would I have more PWBA titles? Yeah, I think that I would, but, I'm not mad about it, you know, because I've I've had a really incredible career. Um, so I jumped from collegiate bowling. Pretty much, I, I was already on Team USA, but then I was just was more full time. Like that is what I did all day long. I practiced. I um, I, w- I traveled a lot. I was gone for uh, weeks at a time, all over the world. And so I think it was kind of um, an easy an easy thing to go from a competitive collegiate team into a competitive, you know, team USA team and to have um, the success that I did with, with that team. So I don't think a lot of people uh, from a professional perspective have that story to tell. I think there really is only um, three of us, Ms. Shannon Plahowski, Missy Parkin and myself who At the time, we still continue to stay relevant, um, despite the fact there was no PWBA tour. But I'm so glad that it's back for these young girls to um, to have a platform to shine, and they really are shining.
3: You mentioned Missy and Shannon and and yourself—only three of the greatest uh, female bowlers of all time. But hey, you know they worked. It worked out pretty well. Uh, We got a couple minutes left. Uh, Last question for you. Um, In addition to being an extremely successful bowler, a Hall of Famer, you're very passionate about coaching both Mm -hmm. bowling uh, on the lanes and uh, beyond the lanes Mm -hmm. using uh, the name of your website. And you Mm -hmm. you have a YouTube channel where you you chat and you kind of just give some advice. So where does that passion for coaching and kind of inspiring and and helping the next generation come from?
2: Yeah, I started a youth tour too, the elite youth tour. Um, I just feel like bowling has given me so much. It's given me so much and it's given me so many incredible moments that it's only normal for me to now give back to the sport that gave so much to me. And, to be able to see the next generation um, thrive and shine and help them on their way to collegiate bowling, Team USA, and then on to professional bowling, like that is where my heart is. And that is um, really what fills me up. And Beyond the Lanes is essentially the life lessons that I learned through bowling that really can apply to everyone. And um, and these these lessons are hard and, and they're important. And it's um, it's something now that I can kind of, teach uh to others and make them part of of the journey that i'm on
3: we have been speaking with uh deandra as she's a hall of fame bowler a coach uh just an all-around terrific human being and she won over the weekend 2022 pba pwba storm striking against cancer mixed doubles uh, over the past weekend with my earlier guest ej Tackett. and she's also celebrating that title With her birthday today too, so Deandra, happy birthday to you once again! And thank you so much for taking some time and joining us. I'm a huge bowler myself, so <laughs> it's it's always a pleasure getting to chat with uh, some of the best uh, that the game has seen. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for um, bringing bowling to light. We appreciate it. It's
3: always my pleasure, and uh, thank you so much. I'm Dominic Jimenez. More on the other side. This is Tidewater Lightning Sports.
7: Tittillating Sports continues on Sports Byline USA.
3: Closing down this edition of Tidling Sports, Dominic Jimenez here. Thank all my guests today. Enjoy chatting with each and every one of you. We had an eclectic blend of people, some a couple bowlers, a director, comedian. So, yeah, we, we, we did a little bit of everything. Oh, and a basketball expert. Uh, trade deadline it's almost here. Uh, a couple minor deals. Toronto has acquired reliever Anthony Bass from the Marlins for shortstop Jordan Groshans. Don't know who he is, sorry. The Dodgers, uh, Mike Sempervivi, uh, 20 minutes ago, mentioned it. Uh, the Dodgers have acquired outfielder Joey Gallo from the Yankees for relief uh, right-handed pitcher Clayton Beater. And as I mentioned to Sempervivi, the Boston Red Sox are acquiring... Air Cosmer and the Padres will be paying most of the music. Most of the music? Most of the money owed to him. Most of the music. There was a lot more to talk about today, but we're out of time, so you're going to have to wait today for me to do it. I'm Dominic Jimenez. This is Title Laney Sports, and as I mentioned, Wrestling Observer Live with Mike Sempervivi and Brian Alvarez is coming up next. We'll talk to you tomorrow.